Okay. Uh, good afternoon. Before we call the meeting to order, just a bit of housekeeping. Um, the proceedings this afternoon are a workshop. And to that point, I want to make sure that everyone is aware we will not be taking public comment, which is typical for workshops. Uh, the proceedings were published in the paper of the pilot. They also were published on the website. And I believe the agenda should be right outside the meeting room. I'd appreciate it for those that are participating by Zoom. Uh, put yourselves on mute. If at some point in time, you feel, well, it would be irrelevant, excuse that. Uh, for those that are present, I'd appreciate it if you mute your silence or silence your phones or turn them off or however you want to do that. Um, and that concludes the public announcement portion of this evening, this afternoon. I'm so used to six o'clock at night, <laughs> this four o'clock thing is turned around. Um, with that, I'd like to call to order the January 8th work session meeting of the Route County Planning Commission. Um, I will call the roll. Please answer your presence. Uh, Brian Kelly. Present. Greg Jager. Here. Linda Miller. Jim DeFrancia. Present. Bill Norris. That means no cookies today. Andy <laughs> Benjamin. Uh, Paul Weiss. That's me. Ben Martin. Present. Peter Woods. Here. Uh, and then from the commissioners, the Board of County Commissioners, we have Sonia Steele. Sonia is here. Here. Tim Corrigan is here. And Commissioner Redmond is absent. And you don't think by Zoom even? Um, I thought maybe not. Did he? I don't see him. Okay. He was going to try to join via Zoom if he could. Okay. Um, here with me for one minute so we get this thing. Ah, there it is. Welcome back, Pete. We missed you too. Oh, thank you. And somebody can sit at the table with us. You guys don't have to cluster up all over there if you'd like. Who's on this side yeah, here? Yeah, we got to take Bill's place. He's not here. Mm -hmm. Here you go. Either there way. Yeah, yeah. There's room here, Peter. <clears throat> First order of business after the call of order is a sunshine resolution. Um, there's a resolution in front of us that outlines the posting locations. Any questions on the resolution as presented? Might there be a motion to adopt the resolution? I move we approve the Planning Commission Sunshine Resolution as presented. Second. Thank you, Jim. I don't think we need any discussion. All those in favor? Uh, please signify by saying yes. Yes. Opposed, yes. yes. say no. Chair votes yes. Sunshine resolution is adopted. Uh, public comment. We'll accept public comment on anything that is not on the agenda this evening. That would be the time to do so. Hearing and seeing none, we move right to the next item for consideration, which is topic of this work session. And so Christy, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you very much. Um, before I just get started, I just want to do a sound check with Jessica from Design Workshop. 
to make sure we're having no issues over Zoom before we yeah. get started. Can you hear me okay? We can. You can hear us? Yep. Perfect. Okay. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, during this third work, work session out of three we have scheduled, the intent of these um, work sessions have really been to have good discussion around some topics that um, we have been providing guidance on through the master plan that was adopted last year. Uh, there will be um, time for public comment and full review of the draft. But at this point, staff really needs to get some guidance from the decision makers on some of these topics that are listed in the agenda today. We have discussed items having to do with house size that I know a lot of you um, have provided comments on directly to me or have reached out to me on. Um, tonight, we're not talking about house size, but um, we did that the last two work sessions. So I just wanna provide some clarification of what tonight's goal is. Um, the topics for tonight have to do with um, process mainly, our subdivision process, LPS, um, a lot of environmental topics, oil and gas, um, and um, yeah, that pretty much covers it. Um, but I wanna just discuss the outline and process to provide comments. Um, as through this process, we have met with various stakeholders and um, you know, as of today at 4.30, um, John, I received your comments, John Vanderblumen back there. Um, I was not able to circulate that to everybody for them to be able to hear your comments. Um, a lot of the topics had to do with our prior discussions. How that will work with you all is that when I do receive public comments, um, they'll be vetted through me to you all, um, just so we can organize all the topics and that you're not just getting comments piecemealed. So I just wanna acknowledge that we received comments from various people up until this point, one specifically today, um, who is here in the audience. So I will be getting that all to you in an orderly fashion, um, but <clears throat> the appropriate time to provide comments and specifics on code language will be when we um, actually have a draft that we will distribute to you all and that will be done and discussed during a public hearing and where we'll be taking public comment on those items. We will also be having, um, I believe we're looking to schedule some more outreach meetings and we'll be meeting with various stakeholders up until adoption, which is anticipated in March um, of this year. So at this point, we're really here wanting to discuss some of the code topics with you all the decision makers and get some direction to help inform the draft, which uh, staff and design workshop, uh, Jessica on the call there, um, along with Ashley, who's also on the call. We've been working hard behind the scenes with drafting certain language and a lot of the top topics and questions we have for you all. We want to just get some of that um, direction from you all as we move forward. Um, so, um, I want to put it over to Jessica to bring up the presentation where the memo you all have is a very high level um, discussion on what is on the topic uh, on the agenda for, uh, for today. And we will go into a little more detail on some of those topics. Um, 
for you all tonight. So Jessica, if you would like to take it away. Great, thank you so much. And um, we are excited to be with you today. Thank you for um, scheduling this additional work session to run through uh, some of our final module two and module three topics. Uh, so today we are hoping to review with you the subdivision process, get into a conversation about land preservation subdivisions or LPS, um, vested rights, environmental regulations, and then oil and gas. So I'm gonna dig right in and we are gonna start with the subdivision uh, process first. <coughs> So one of the key changes that the design workshop and staff team are looking at are ways to just streamline all of the county's processes, subdivision being one of them. Um, we've talked previously about some of the others, but we wanted to dig into the subdivision piece specifically with you tonight. Um, so the top line of this slide identifies the current process. Um, it requires a sketch plan that is reviewed by Planning Commission and Board of County Commissioners, then a preliminary plan that's also reviewed by Planning Commission and Board of County Commissioners, and then a final plan that is reviewed administratively. So in order to help streamline uh, this process, we are proposing an uh, alternative path um, starting with sketch plan. So sketch plan would be optional for applications in the tier two or tier three growth areas. The idea is that the master plan has identified these as areas that are appropriate for growth. And um, there are items that um, are included in there and the updated code should uh, address many of those items. And so that sketch plan piece really would be optional. Um, and for areas within the tier two and tier three growth areas, they would be able to skip right to the preliminary plan. Uh, review, which would be completed by Planning Commission and Board of County Commissioners, and then the final plan would continue to be reviewed administratively. For uh, sub proposed subdivisions that are not within a Tier 2 or Tier 3 growth area, the current process would remain in place as it is today. I would also note that existing allowances in the code to review items concurrently would remain with the proposal. Um, also within subdivision, there are three required land dedications. Um, these are proposed to remain. At this uh, time, we're not proposing any changes. We did wanna just highlight for you all what those are. And we used a, an example calculation in the memo and on the screen here for how to calculate uh, current land dedications for open space, parks, and school lands. So again, we are not proposing an adjustment at this time, but wanted to get your feedback on that. So our two specific questions for you related to subdivision are number one, uh, does the group support making that sketch plan step optional if the project is located within a tier two or tier three growth area? And then secondly, are you comfortable with the existing land dedication requirements? Are those uh, sufficient in your mind for parks, uh, open space and school? I have a question. Oh, pause there and see what question. Is the option option to the petitioner or the developer or the option option to the planning staff on the, the schedule? The way that we would typically write that language is that it is at the option of the developer. So the developer could choose to opt in 
to that sketch plan process is how it's typically done. And Christy, do, yeah. do you have a history um, how these donations got established? I mean, how long have they been in place and where did they come from? Can you know? The, the uh, open space line dedication mm -hmm. language. Yeah. Um, that whole set of criteria, I mean, that just didn't appear. Somebody. Yeah. So we've got three different things we're talking about there. We're talking about open space and then lands for parks and lands for schools. Right. Um, the requirement that the county address land for parks and schools has been in state statute since yeah. the 70s. Okay. And so we have had that requirement in there for some time. It was after the Fox Grove subdivision up on Fish Creek Falls and Huckleberry that after that we, I mean, before that it was 5% of the, the value. And there was a lot of, um, there was no connection to the actual impact that the subdivision was was creating. So after that, we came up with calculations to make it so that the to provide certainty to the developers so that they know exactly what would be required of them as far as that land dedication. It's really goes. clarifying <laughs> that process. Okay. Yeah. So that was in like 2017, 2018. And then open space requirements have been there. Uh, I don't know when they were first put in, but they've been there for a long time. I was just curious if there was some standard is really where I was coming from that counties use. It's a great question. I was sort of been feeling in a similar sense because to me, the 10% open space is really low compared to what I've seen in other <clears throat> parts of the country anyway. Um, Jessica, um, from your experience, I mean, I would say 10% I have seen as being pretty standard. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to offer, Jessica, on that. Yeah, it, what I've seen is for subdivisions, that 10% is, is fairly standard. And then um, PUDs might be more, um, right? And, and that's kind of similar to what the Rock County process is right now. With the PUDs, you're typically asking for something that you wouldn't be allowed to do otherwise, right? right. So it, it's it's typical to see a higher percentage for PUDs, but for subdivisions, 10 is what um, what I have seen. Where does this land end up, the parks and the schools? It doesn't do any good to obviously have, yeah. So where, where does it go when it's not open space? So that land is in the development. This is land that is part of the development that is required to be dedicated to the parks the parks department or a school district. And so there are there is a provision for a fee in lieu in fee in lieu of that land dedication because say like Fox Grove, for example, it was a six lot subdivision, so probably like a five acre site. When you start doing the calculations, it just doesn't make sense to put a have a quarter acre school site on that property. So there is a provision for a fee in lieu to that the developer can pay in lieu of land dedication. And that's established either through conversations between the developer and the parks department or the school district or through staff or and then finally approved by planning commission and the board. Is that true of the parks provision too? Same thing, yeah. 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 
and there's the money it goes directly to the school district or directly to the parks department if we is a parks department well we would find the most appropriate entity to accept that and then on the school dedication i thought that it could be either a school or other public purpose for instance a fire station uh, so the statute is specific to parks and schools. And so we, you could impose, uh, that would be considered an impact fee for a yeah. fire department. And we could impose that, but you have to show a rational nexus to, based on what you are exacting from the developer has a rational nexus to the impact that the development is creating. And there's, you just have to do an impact study and an impact report that quantifies all of that and then lays out what the, what that, that exaction is based on that impact. And the county doesn't have that for, for any other exaction between schools and parks. Yeah. Color me confused because I thought that was actually a subject of discussion way back in the day. So when we got the nine acre parcel for the Sirocco School District, right. mm -hmm. the fire district was also requesting consideration. So our regulations used to say for a public purpose, such as fire station, parks, schools. But then when we got into the Fox Grove, we, um, that. we realized okay. that the statute is specific to parks and schools. We don't have an impact study for anything else. And so we are going to narrow our focus on just parks and schools. And if, if you recall that whole process, uh, we worked with the county attorney's office on clarifying um, how we uh, calculate it and what we can be asking for. So. And if the fire district, for instance, <clears throat> uh, wanted to acquire some property uh, it, by virtue of doing an impact study, it would be outside of this process. It would be outside of the planning process. Uh, I mean, that would come about as part of our process, but we don't have any regulations to be able okay. to require it. Okay. We could consider it though. Um, we don't have impact fees and we don't have an right. impact fee schedule. There are other communities that do. Um, we do it a little bit differently through this way and we require studies and for the developer to work directly with those entities. And when we bring you our staff report and we're working with the developer, um, ultimately, as of right now, it's up to planning commission and the board of county commissioners to decide if they are um, addressing uh, those offsite impacts that the development possibly could be um, putting on to um, the surrounding properties and into the community. So to offset that, they usually work directly with the school district, with the fire departments. Um, it could be the water district, uh, depending on who it is. So CPW. depending upon the project, theoretically, planning commission uh, and or the county commissioners could uh, require that an, uh, a study be done, uh, the impacts considered, and a fee uh, assessed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But not a dedication of actual land. I mean, that, I think that would, that could be a potential. Yeah. I mean, because if the fee is 
$100,000 and you have a piece of land that is worth that much that it can actually serve that need, that could be an acceptable um, exaction as opposed to cash. Thank you. How much cash are we talking about in the examples that you've provided here? It's dependent upon the appraised value of the land. Yeah. So um, if you just could you put could you go back a slide? So there in, in those examples, you see for parks dedication, 0.59 acres of parks and then 0.782 acres for schools. Um, obviously, those are not like for a school that just wouldn't work. So um, they would provide us an appraisal of the entire project and you would then get a per acre value and then you would multiply that per acre value by the amount of acres that are proposed, that are required. And then that would be the resulting fee in lieu. Not including the vertical construction. It does not include no. vertical construction, no. So I'd like to go back to the open space dedication if we could. and. Um... I think I'm going to need a whole lot more information about comparable definitions of open space to be convinced that 10 is a standard number. I mean, just a very quick search pulls the American Planning Association, you know, that sounds like their standard, but then the green building has 30% where I lived in Pima County, Arizona, 30% was a standard. So I think I need a lot more information to be convinced that this is the right number. And then the other piece of it is you know, not all open space is the same. So when we talk about the definition of open space, are we talking about unbuildable lots and hillsides? Are we talking about meaningful open space with ecosystem services? Like, how do we have all of that defined? Did we have that back in 2017? I felt like we had active versus passive open space. That was going to be part we of did. my question. Uh, yeah, so it, it, it needs to be active. It needs to be usable. Usable in what sense? Uh, like a trail or um, swing sets and jungle gyms. And why, why is that? I mean, that's, so that's not necessarily a standard definition of open space that it would need to be usable. I mean, open space also has the values of preserving <coughs> ecosystem function to offset the impact of the development. So there are right. different types of open space. And you and you made similar comments um, during our uh, <laughs> review of a development in Stagecoach most recently. And we took notes on that. And, you know, through talking with Design Workshop, it's something that we want to take a look at in the overall definition. Um, because you made some good points about, you know, even if it wasn't usable, it still could have high value if it was protecting water bodies and so, or so some of that's open wildlife is up to the interpretation of planning commission and the board of county commissioners whether yeah. or not you think there's, you know, what they're offering as open space is acceptable. If you don't think it's acceptable, tell them no. Well, I understand that, but I think also the purpose of what we're trying to accomplish here today is to provide some certainty to somebody who might come forward with an application and have a pretty good definition as to what they might want to propose. And particularly if we're talking about getting away from the sketch process, which we haven't dug into too much, you know, mm -hmm. I was under the impression that the sketch phase was really a good opportunity for the applicant to be provided with some guidance as to what would be acceptable and some clarity there. So, so you know, we, we could get back to that, but I, I... I guess my feeling is that each situation is uh, so unique 
that it would be hard to put real uh, ironclad definitions around it. Because I'm thinking about uh, Fox yep. Grove, and then what was the one we did up there by the around the corner, going out towards the elementary school? What was uh, Strawberry Park Heights? Yeah, that. I mean, it was just so unique. I just don't know how you would have a, a set of standards that would have fully dealt with that particular project. Yeah. That's why because I don't disagree. I don't disagree with you in terms of providing predictability and having uh, standards that everybody can kind of understand. But at the end of the day, there's still going to be some subjectivity left up to planning commission and board of county commissioners. So as for the last two meetings, it's now 427 and we're still on the first set of questions. I'm afraid that if we don't balance our questions okay. with and try to get through all of them, we're going to really get bogged down. Um, okay. So, you know, More I'm, I'm just going to flag item two for the open space. I think okay. I've made my point sure. clear. Yeah. And, yep. um, you know, I don't need to belabor the situation over here. Any other comments from the commissioners in terms of where did the sketch plan changes come from? Was that something that the planning department requested or is that something that um, we've had some requests from developers we have worked with about streamlining our processes also considering the fact sketch is mainly you know um, an evaluation of compliance with the master plan and if you're talking about our tier two areas where we're looking at development that supports the community and where we want to target our growth. Um, that is in line with the master plan already. Um, to Sonia's point about giving some clarity to a developer, it would, that's why we put in language for it to be optional. So these are the conversations we have with the developer up front that it's up to them to come through sketch to get some of those um, questions answered that they may have or you know some feedback from the decision makers before they move forward with getting engineered plans and more of that detail to get to preliminary. So it would streamline the process and it's something that we could tie into preliminary but not have two separated meetings. But then again, you know, it would be up to the developer to make that choice if they want to separate out the process and get that, you know, uh, I guess that comfort level to move forward or not um, and, and hear what they want to hear or the information that they need to move forward. How much time would this save a developer if they <clears throat> chose not to get a sketch? I mean, it, it depends, but you know, you're looking at, you know, I would say up to three months or less. Christy, I would chime in on that and say it might save them time, but it could also save them some cost. If they have sufficient information, they can go directly into the next level of planning. But they'd be uh, at their own not risk. But they, do they, it show they would, and they would have to meet. I mean, any developer or anybody that is submitting an application is required to meet with staff first. So they're provided a lot of those, that, that direction from us, options from us. And, you know, they get a full checklist of the studies that they're gonna have to do, that they could do on their own and choose to move forward with that. Um, or like you said, um, go through sketch first and actually come through the process. It would strike me that if there's serious uncertainties, developers gonna wanna do sketch. Right. Yeah. Thereafter, 
keep in mind the alternative case too. Like this is also, if, if you're doing a two lot split in stagecoach where it's a growth area and you just happen to have a lot that's twice as big as some of your neighbors, you have to go through this entire three-step process because we don't have an administrative split option like municipalities typically do. So it's in, in situations where it's a very minor subdivision and the it's in a growth area, the assumption that it's compliant with the master plan can generally be presumed. If there's any doubt about that at all, we would recommend that they go through sketch. So it is reasonable for us to take a position that the sketch can probably be offered as an option? Yeah. I'm good with that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. And you have your marching orders on the last, the next question? Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. Thank you. I'm um, going to move into land preservation subdivisions. Um, the proposed changes really focus on trying to incentivize the use of the LPS process rather than the statutory 35 acre uh, process as a way to preserve land and uh, cluster development. So we have uh, two proposed changes. The first is on process that we wanted to discuss with you. Um, so in the code today, there are minor and major LPS definitions. A minor LPS is one that does not involve the granting of bonus lots, while a major uh, LPS does uh, grant bonus lots. That current process is again listed on the top of the screen. And this requires a public hearing with the Board of County Commissioners for a minor LPS. This is proposed to change to an administrative process. For a minor LPS. Again, this would not be granting of bonus lots um, as part of that process. For a major LPS, the current process includes a review with Planning Commission on their consent agenda, followed by a public hearing with Board of County Commissioners. This is proposed to change to only require a public hearing with the Board of County Commissioners. So that's the process change, trying to simplify, um, make an administrative review where, where we felt uh, it made sense based off of the um, impacts and kind of balancing the importance of LPS versus the 35 acre subdivision, and then a minor process change for the major LPS. The second proposed change that we're interested in hearing your feedback on is related to the number of bonus parcels um, that can be created through that LPS process. Um, so what we've outlined here is just one option, which would allow bonus lots to be created um, based off of one lot per 50 acres rather than the current code, which is one lot per 100 acres. Uh, the math for a 35 acre subdivision, the existing process and a potential different process is included in your packet and on the screen. Uh, this is a hypothetical example of a 250-acre parcel, which could become seven 35-acre parcels today. And under the LPS formula, it could include nine five-acre parcels that would include a remainder parcel of 205 acres. Um, if the county moved to allow um, one bonus lot per 50 acres, that would result in 10 five acre lots with a remainder parcel of 200 acres. So in this example, it would result in just one additional um, lot versus the current process. So um, two questions for you related to LPS. The first is, a question on that process change. Are you supportive of uh, that streamlining? And then uh, the second is, uh, 
does the group support increasing the number of bonus lots that could be approved through that LPS process? Also knowing that there is a separate conversation that needs to happen with the Division of Water Resources related to well permits, um, but we wanted to get your thoughts on just this idea of changing the, the bonus lot calculation. So I'll pause there and see if you've got any questions for us. What's the incentive for a minor LPS? You're not getting any bonus lots. And do we have an example of one? Uh, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head is the, the Zaner LPS north of Hayden. Yeah. And so like these smaller LPSs, so LPSs were created for two different reasons. One, to discourage 35 acre development and also to give like family ranches the ability to subdivide off say like five to seven acres for one of their kids and selling it to them instead of having to subdivide off 35 acres okay. in order for them to build a house. So the, the smaller LPSs are more tend to be used by the, the ranching families that want to keep the land in the family, but still have the family there. And then the major LPS is more the Marabou, the Alpine Mountain ranches, that kind of stuff. And based on our conversations up to this point, you know, I think Ren, you have pointed out, you know, um, trying to make the LPS more attractive. Um, so this is some of what we are proposing and specific to your question, um, Commissioner Corgan, about how many have we had with the minor, you know, we're hoping with making it more of an administrative review. Um, you know, a lot of people definitely are deterred coming through a public process, especially when we're trying to help out the ranching community. Um, we're hoping that um, this could support uh, more people coming through this process. Questions, comments, commissioners? Any feedback from Division of Water? Uh, so they have cl a clustering statute that allows you to go down to one a well, and so this is just on, on wells. Yeah. It will allow you to go to be able to get a well for each dwelling unit at a rate of 17 and a half acres. So I mean, we could, which still affects the LPSs right now, because if you're getting bonus lots, then you are, I don't know if it's increasing or decreasing, but the, the question you have to ask yourself as a developer is, do I want these bonus lots in exchange for some of the lots not being eligible for secondary dwelling units? And so um, that's something that developer would have to make a decision on by themselves. And again, this is for ones that are served by wells. Alpine Mountain Ranch and Marabou both got, they both got significant amount of bonus lots. They all have secondary dwelling units, but they also have a central water system that is supplied by a central well that is operating under a plant for augmentation. So they've been able to supplement the water with an augmentation plan, which allows them to have that density above and beyond that one dwelling unit per 17 and a half acres. So I've got a lot of heartburn with this one. Um, uh, like both of the questions or just one or the other? Minor versus major? Um, I mean, I think the first question is presented in a very simplistic fashion here on the screen, but the detail is loaded. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here in the detail. We're talking about doubling the number of bonus lots, 
there's apparently some form of financial value that comes from those remainder parcels in the form of tax advantage that I think we probably want to talk about. Um, and I guess my question is, you know, is doubling the density, is that consistent with what we're trying to accomplish? I, I, well, there's not a doubling of density. We're 50% more. 50%, yeah. right. But 50% more bonus lots. Right. Bonus, right. Lots. Yeah. Just bonus lots. Bonus lots. I mean, like under, under this example, you could do seven 35 acre lots, <coughs> and under existing LPS, you would get nine. And then under the proposed, you would get 10. So it's a 10% or 11% yeah. in hard reality. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I guess I'm also confused about why we are cutting the Planning Commission consent agenda question out of the process for the major LPSs. Why would we just have a BCC hearing as opposed to having it go through Planning Commission as it does now? I mean, because currently it's just on consent agenda. Right. And so there, unless it's pulled off a consent agenda, they there's no discussion on it. And they so, don't discuss consent at all? They can. Uh, they can. Right. But wow. I mean the last I mean the last major LPS that came through was Alpine Mountain Ranch in two thousand six. So so it has been a while. Um we were just proposing these to help encourage and to help encourage people to go through the LPS process instead of making doing 35s. What would we be talking about anyway then? It's kind of by formula, isn't it? The LPS. I mean, the formula is the formula is the formula. Right. But then there are standards for, there are LPS standards for the remainder parcel, for utilities, for- Design guidelines. The, basically the design guidelines. And what's the deal with the remainder parcel being only restricted for a limited period of time? Where does that come from? How does that play into all of this? So, what happens after? So, yeah. so there's a provision in the subdivision regulations <laughs> that say that the development agreement that you have to enter into for an LPS, it can be requested to be amended after 40 years. And then there's three criteria that we would take into consideration when evaluating such a request. And it's mainly, um, have things changed? Has the master plan changed? Has the character of the area changed? Have things changed to a degree that the county should allow higher density in those areas? But that's not different than what we have now. That's, that's currently not, that's on currently the books. in there, yeah. Right. But I guess my and really the intent was maybe there was an expectation that you know when they went into place in the regulations so 20 years ago that you know maybe the county would have looked very different and it would warrant you know um, some sort of evaluation but as we know you know with just going through the master plan um, really we just strengthened and clarified where development is appropriate in the county and all that much hasn't changed apart from population some other um, you know, trends that we had identified. But um, the question is, you know, should it be in perpetuity or, you know, is that something that should remain the 40 years? I don't think any of us were here with the 40 year um, rationale, um, but based on Alan and I's uh, just research or just understanding of it, that was why 40 years was put in at that time. 
So there's a risk there that you've identified. But I would counter that the, the risk of uh, not having these LPSs, you end up with things like Storm Mountain Ranch, you know, some of these crazy configured yeah. flagpole. Have you ever looked at the GIS for Storm Mountain Ranch? It's crazy looking. There's these little 50 foot wide strips. Anyway. Oh, yeah, that's not the only one. And, and it really yeah. prevents the, any of, well, it doesn't necessarily, but somebody could fence that lot off. And the downside of that for wildlife migration or potential agricultural use. I think the short story for me, I'm really supportive of this. I, uh, I thought we should do this for a long time because um, this could encourage more LPSs. And I think the LPSs are generally a really good thing that we should be encouraging. You could have convinced me to be even more uh, generous. So that, more that's generous. kind of a, the conclusion that we came to when reviewing these is that if you can do, like what you're describing is actually what I would call a well-designed 35 acre because the even worse situation is when they're just, you know, large contiguous 35 acre chunks and then that gets very fragmented. Um, if you imagine the lot lines aren't there for a moment and the houses are clustered in that 35 acre subdivision, why not just have that be an LPS then? And so the problem is, is that when we apply any standards in that situation, then surveyors are like, oh, you should just do a 35 and not deal with this. So it's kind of like two tiers. There's 35 acre alternative by right LPS, which has no bonus slots, and then the bonus slots where they're actually getting something. So the only thing that I really, really like about this one is the um, sentence on page 205 where the team recommends a dramatic consolidation of standards with a focus on locating development to preserve important natural features wildlife habitats and the like, but removing performance standards. Other than that, I fundamentally disagree with your perspective. <laughs> 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 I'm going to echo support for Tim's perspective. The objective here is to try and create as much open space as we possibly can. And, and with the 35 acre option, if you don't create some kind of incentive to avoid that, you're just going to have developers relying on the 35 acres, and they give a demonstration where you you get 100. That dem, the example I gave you, you get 100 acres of open space out there in exchange for giving them a couple of lots. I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't know why you'd be opposed to it. I think we're having an incomplete conversation because I think when until and unless we're talking about those open space lots that are only open space for 40 years, there's no guarantee that that's the way it's going to stay. And so I think we're giving things away in exchange for no guarantee of what we are actually asking for. So, so would you suggest then that we do which up, just up, do it in perpetuity? Yeah, yeah, I said, or put, put environmental or agricultural easements on them that prohibit anything after 40 years. So the 40 years is just the time frame in which you cannot come and ask. So that all of that, all of that development potential has been taken off the remainder parcel. And until the developer after 40 years comes and asks planning commission and the board and planning commission and the board say, yes, we are going to get rid of that restriction. That restriction stays in place. Right. So it, it, it's, not, it's not like, oh, 40 years are up. You can go and do whatever you want. They still have to come back to this body to get approval for that. And if the commissioners say, 
no, the master plan still says we want to limit residential development out in the county, then you would deny that request and that uh, restriction would stay in place. So presumably in making the request, they would have to substantiate why they want it. There has to be some reason. Exactly. Yeah, yep. Other than I just want more lots to sell yep. and make some more money. Yep. And that wouldn't cut it. There are standards in the regulations Good. that staff would evaluate that request against. And regardless of what happens 40 years from now, we're the ones signing the plot and we're the ones making the deal. We're the ones giving an additional density in exchange for something that may well be taken away in 40 years. Who knows? But it can only be taken away in the context of the changing of the master plan. A board of county commissioners could not arbitrarily say, ah, don't worry about it, go ahead and develop it. Because if they did and it was in conflict with the master plan, we'd get sued. Why are we not tightening that up as a course of conversation with this process? That's my question. I would say the reason that we shouldn't is that uh, things do change over time. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, we talk a lot about uh, conservations in perpetuity, which in of themselves could be problematic 40, 50, 60 years down the road. So I, I guess. I have a little bit more faith in a future set of commissioners <laughs> than maybe you do. Which of the current LPSs wow. have Who are you? language? <laughs> well, you, I mean, really? we, don't term, we don't have term limits. You might still be. <laughs> I guess that's possible. Fred, you had, what was the question? Which of these? Which of the current LPSs have this forty-year language in the remaining? They, they, they all do. They all do. They all do. We're not changing anything. And that's my. That's the problem that I have with this is yeah. that we're changing the benefit and we're not changing what we're asking for. Would you in like return. to see us draft some language that we can flag for conversation mm -hmm. reading the draft on, on this section of the 40 years or whether we change it to perpetuity, but we can flag it for you um, for when we come back for public hearings. Well, I do have some hesitation about Finding a future commission as well, because as Tim makes a point, circumstances change. Forty years or fifty years, two generations from now, the world's, a, the world's a different place. There might be a very good reason why they want to free it up for some form of, of acceptable development. I don't think we should be as presumptuous as to think that everything we put in place today necessarily has to remain unchanged. But they do have to suggested. come and ask. They have to come and ask for it. They don't have a right to do it. They still have to come and ask for it. And, and you've already got infrastructure right. in place. You've right. already got some roads, water, all that. If the purpose of planning is to try to truly keep the open space open, that's beyond even the LPS right. subdivisions. You, you might, 40 years from now, have to develop more in, near your areas right. that you've already developed. That's the part into the future I wish we could all see, you know. Uh, the consent agenda, correct me if I'm wrong, but we, we can't comment on that when it's on our agenda unless we want to bring it to public hearing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we that's a, well, I think, I think the rule is a little bit, you could have an innocuous question and it wouldn't change anything, but if you've got any kind of questions, then consent, yeah, it goes. And, and is it creating any more work for the staff to have the consent agenda item? I know you're trying to streamline something there, but we typically just go, done it's like a th what's it creating for you to put it on the 
planning commission of consent agenda. But that's not the issue, is it? It, it adds well, more time on the other side. They got to wait that extra time before yeah. it like, gotcha. And ours, like if they have a lawyer or someone who's going to present for them gotcha. and they have to be there. And so then that's yeah, a waste of time. Other, gotcha. So even though I disagree with Commissioner Macy's on this right now, I'm, I think your suggestion to flag it for future conversation is appropriate. Give us time to think about it a little bit. Yeah. And, and that's what we intend to do on, on some of the other items that, you know, uh, have been pointed out to us um, and we've been given direction to draft language and, you know, we're, we're making notes on the back end, the three of us of, you know, items that we want to revisit. That but we, my that sense is the minor in. versus major is acceptable. Or am I just reading that wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just right. taking the taking it off the consent. I guess one more question I would have, based on what Brian said, is if it is on the consent agenda for the planning commission, public can then pull it for comments as well, or is it just uh, no, just only us. I think. Okay. So in that situation, their their opportunity, if it if it goes on consent agenda with planning commission their opportunity for public comment would be at the right. board hearing. Right. So, so, what so it's basically of... no, no change. So someone I mean, could... From a public process perspective, there's very little change Correct. with that in right. terms of the opportunities for somebody to weigh in if they can't weigh in on mm. consent. Right. Correct. There's always an opportunity. Same, same. Someone could come to public comment at the beginning of the meeting exactly. and ask, hey, and raise you guys help. want you to pull B. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. could commission could refuse to do that, but Probably not always the smartest thing to do, though. <laughs> so you have direction. So was yes. that a yes? It's a yes on the minor major. Okay, and then what about the the additional bonus? It's lots? the forty years. I think that's all part of that, isn't it? That's how I'm using right. it. Uh, no, yeah. the the forty years is something separate because okay. that because the the question number four that's in relation to how we are how the developer is designing it and how we are processing it and evaluating it that 40 years is something 40 years later okay. that we're addressing then i'd ask the commissioners any concepts or any changes or concerns about and you've got the 40-year hang up i yeah i don't i just don't flatly don't like this i don't like the the um adding the more bonus slots and maybe i just need to dig into it further and give it a little more consideration, but I just feel like we're basically not getting what we're, we think we're getting. We're saying these LPSs are these, you know, great models because we're preserving all this open space and so on and so sure. forth. So we're going to increase their opportunities to develop and we're not getting anything better regarding the open space. In fact, yeah, we we're are. not even- no, you are. Yeah, we are. We are getting, yeah. we're getting, You're getting open preserved space. open space that cannot be fenced off along these crazy lines. You're guaranteeing that that 200 acres or whatever it is truly will be open space. And a seat at the table, which is more important than anything else oh, yeah. as compared to 35 acres. So the county needs every arrow in the quiver that can be there. Otherwise, if there's no incentive, the low hanging fruit from a developer standpoint is they're going to go the 35 acre route and not have right. to deal with any of it. Yeah, it's just not worth it. So, and even this may not, I mean, so it I'm may not, not sure. be perfect, but as <clears> compared <throat> to the alternative, it's much better from the ag perspective. 
just for, from just the wildlife for, resource. Yeah, there's from the, the risk that you've identified, Sonia, which I agree is a risk. There's the risk of not doing anything. There's risk on both sides. The greater risk is not doing anything and forcing Absolutely. people to do 35 acres. Yep. But it's clearly shown it's positive results. We've got a number of projects in the county that have shown that it's beneficial. It's created major open space. And if they want to do something 40 years from now, they're going to come back and ask and demonstrate why. And, and, and I agree with you. The 40 years, we should all educate ourselves on it. I, for one, am not. I always assumed there was a deed restriction associated and or a land trust involved. So I I would like a little addition, some additional information on the 40 year implication. But, you know, broad strokes as compared to 35, the LPS needs every incentive it can have. And I, and I believe in some cases, and, and the staff could confirm this, but I have to go back and look, that in some cases where it's been applied and they did create the open space they still went ahead and voluntarily did put restrictions on them, permanent, permanent wildlife preserves, permanent agricultural reserves, uh, permanent conservation reserves, that they did that to preserve the open space in perpetuity. They can't come back and do anything in 40 years at all because they put it on there already. And so many of these developments are then turned over to the HOA. Right. And so the developer's not at the table He's not anymore. there anymore. That financial incentive is not there like it was in the early years. Most of these developments, it, 50% lot sales, 50% of going to, to the end user, so to speak, they get turned over to the HOA. And so that economic incentive is usually not there because you're dealing with an HOA now that wants, appreciates the open space versus the density. Right. They were motivated. That's why they bought in. Yeah, Redwood, no, they were, they were motivated to buy in because of the open space and the, and the open areas. So they're hardly the ones that would come back and want to add a bunch of new neighbors. And as I looked at the calculation for the bonus lots, there's not a reduction in the size of the open space. It's just an increase in lot. That's numbers. correct. Yep. So the open space still remains. It's the same. You're in the minority. <laughs> Which is you okay. notice that I have not opened my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know, and I don't have any. I think you have your direction. I mean, I've been a party one a lot. And I like <laughs> and I, well, I this is just getting like. us to the draft, and there'll yeah. be more time for yeah. discussion, yeah. and there's no decisions being made at this point. So, so um, as one of the evil people that live on a 35-acre track, just to <laughs> confess to it, okay, uh, that... I might bring a very recent story to mind that I looked out the back window the other day and up on the hillside on the adjoining 35 acre was like two dozen deer, which we didn't see last year because it was such a hard winter. South facing grass growing up there. None of us have put in interior fences. There's just hundreds of acres of this grassy area that even though we all own it individually, we haven't fenced it off. But if we got in it with our neighbors, we would fence it off. And there goes that deal of those deer trying to cross that south-facing hillside, accessing grass that's a few hundred feet away because they can't get over the fence during the winter type thing. Just some food for thought. I mean, we don't have it fenced because we haven't, but it doesn't mean we couldn't. And we would have a real impact on wildlife if we did. I have a question. So if someone had a, a 105 acre parcel, could they 
qualify for an LPS at any level by having three one-acre sure. lots yeah. or four one-acre lots, the fourth one being a bonus. Well, so currently the standards are five to seven acre lots. Yeah. What? Are five to seven acre lots. So, uh, so you, you could get an extra 70. lot out of 105 acres. You could not, no. Okay. No. But you could get out of, out of 130. 140. 140. Yes. Yeah. Wait a minute. How many? Five, you, you can't, you, you can do five acre lots, right? You can, yeah, yeah. So you'd have you'd have four of them be twenty acres, and you'd have a hundred acre remainder. So you could, you could, if you had a hundred and twenty acres, <clears throat> you could come up with a bonus lot. So, but then right now the way we interpret it is that the remainder parcel has to be at least a hundred acres, exclusive of all the lots and all the roads. So then, when you start talking about bonus lots, then you have to start taking the acreage of the bonus lot away from the remainder parcel and the remainder parcel still has to stay above that 100 or that your, your five acre lot i mean if the road was completely enclosed within the five acre lot we could go down that rabbit hole. yeah okay yeah, we can talk about can it can we move on to the vesting now yeah okay. <clears throat> okay. all right jessica great um thanks that was a really helpful conversation, um, but we will move to vesting. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was great. Um, one, we have uh, one uh, specific question related to vested rights, but um, vested rights are identified in state statute. Uh, they are granted for site-specific development plans. Um, so in terms of a code cleanup, we are proposing to add a definition that adds some clarity to what do we mean by a site-specific development plan um, that will also ensure consistency with state law. So that's the first proposed change and fairly straightforward. Many communities define um, site-specific development plans or SSDPs, and so we would do that here. Uh, the second proposed change is uh, related to when vested rights are granted. Uh, so the subdivision process uh, and code right now allows vested rights to be granted at sketch plan or preliminary plan. The applicant has to request that and the Board of County Commissioners has to grant that the vesting um, would occur following that sketch or preliminary plan phase. Um, so it's a discretionary review um, that you're allowed to complete. Most jurisdictions only grant vested rights once that final approval is granted um, so that you have assurances about really what is going in and, and a level of detail that you feel comfortable with. Um, and so a proposed change that the team is recommending is that that code be updated to remove that section and that vested rights are granted at the time of final approval, which would be consistent with um, really every other community that, that we do work in. So that is our main question. Um, does the group agree that vested rights should only be granted at the time of final approval versus the current allowance uh, that allows you to grant it at sketch or preliminary? Jessica, I do have, I do have one question just for uh, edification of the larger body. I think the state also provides that under no circumstances, vested rights can exceed 10 years. Is that not correct? Um, I'm not sure that that's in state law. Um, some jurisdictions have adopted a limit of 10 years. Um, I would have to go back or I see Linnea's on. I don't know if Linnea 
knows off the top of her head what the state statute says. I was just I was just looking for that because I had a recollection of that. I thought it was a state regulation, might have been local. Anyway, it's not germane to the question you've asked, and I, for one, would uh, favor oh. commencing at time of final approval because that's when the clock really starts for the developer. Have we ever granted listed rights at sketch yeah. or preliminary? No, not we have a section in our code that's never been applied. And as we've been talking about this with design workshop, um, uh, you know, they um, had advised us, you know, this is something that we probably want to clean up in our code. Um, we've had developers request um, us to consider earlier vesting at sketch. Um, I know we have preliminary had conversations in the past on other applications and um, some of you have been very vocal um, about this um, and the opinion that it should be at final. I'm sure we would hear the same from the county attorney's office, but, um, but um, it's something that's in the code. It's something that's being asked of us. Um, so we want to put it out there um, while we're having these conversations about process and subdivisions. Hasn't the Sonia, didn't the city have quite a bit of experience with <clears throat> these kinds of issues? <laughs> I just recall reading about it. <laughs> Is that a real question? Yeah. I mean, I, sure. I, I mean, people are always looking to extend vesting rights. Absolutely. And um, I've seen them extended for up to 10 years. I'm not sure I've seen them extend further at the city level. But, you know, it's always a very contentious issue because everybody wants to come in under what they the want to come in under. Yeah. But I mean, I think what they're offering here is very non-controversial. It seems like a very simple cleanup item. Am I missing something? Nope. Is there, is it, have they ever been, um, they've been requested. Have they ever been approved prior to They've final? never formally been requested. They've never formally been requested. Yeah. I mean, it's in... In my time uh, here, um, not since I've been here, right? <laughs> I've been here as long as you. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's something that's in our code, um, and uh, you know, now's the time to have the discussion on uh, how we want to handle vested rights. Um, you know, from my experience, I mean, usually um, I've never seen vested rights. Uh, prior to preliminary. Um, and in most instances, it's at final. And a developer could always request an extension or not. Yeah, I mean, we're, um, we're not even talking about the extension at this point. No, uh, I understand. But a developer can ask that that would be like on um, like a subdivision approval uh, we've had several, as you know, that we have extended over the years. Um, this would be more of a vested right to their development before final is, is really the question. So, so after you get approved for preliminary, no. basically they have a vested right to that development moving forward. No. Does anybody think we should leave it in? There you go. What was the question? I said, does anyone think we should leave it in the vested rate? I do have a question. What happens if like they forget to report <coughs> an item or something like that? And then it just hangs out, say a zone change or something for a subdivision. And then that put 
doesn't get complete approval per se uh, because it didn't get recorded. Would that lose their vesting at that point? Or have uh, you we... found those type of approvals where they had a clerical error and then uh, found out that they weren't vested for their approval? Uh, so we have, there's a spot in City View in our software where we can put an expiration date in and then we on the back end, they let us know whenever, whenever it gives us a six month warning when anything's about to expire. And so that's been very useful with uh, expiration of land use permits, but we can also use that for like deadlines for when plats have to be recorded. So, um, and like Christy alluded to, they, we've extended deadlines to record plats so that um, that shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, and to answer the question about the state statute, um, about how long um, it's good for, state statute is three years. And that's what people have requested extensions on. Yeah, and I'll add that's the statutory regular time for vesting. And I don't think there's a upper limit, right? Like you you could grant if you chose to 10 years or 15 years. I, I think that that's kind of up to your discretion. Okay, ready to move on? Yes. Yes, environmental. Great. All right, the next section <laughs> is on environmental regulations. Um, the current code has a number of different sections that uh, require mitigation me measures uh, for development or impacts within environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, the team is proposing to update those that language really to just be clearer that those are standards and not suggestions. Um, and so really just kind of firming up that language to make sure that environmental impacts are mitigated for any development. Um, secondly, we are recommending that an environmental impact report be required for a major subdivision, a PUD, or any large-scale recreation facility just to ensure that we understand, uh, staff understands and um, review bodies, the environmental hazards that might exist and how they're being mitigated for. Um, this type of report is something that does add cost to a uh, project developer, um, which is why we are proposing that this be limited to those projects that are larger and are likely to have um, more significant impacts. Um, and then finally, with some of the changes that are in, uh, occurring at the federal level around water bodies and, and wetlands, we're proposing to add an updated definition about what is a water body to ensure that we're protecting um, everything, including intermittent streams and wetlands. We, we just wanna make sure that the updated regulations are clear that they apply to really anything that has water in it. Um, at any time during the year. Uh, next, I wanted to go into some potential adjustments to water body setbacks. Um, these are proposed really to ensure that the regulations for development match the site-specific conditions. 
Um, so we have uh, been looking at what other communities throughout the Western Slope do. And so some of these recommendations are coming from um, that kind of best practices uh, review. So one way to do this is to move to what's called an inner and an outer setback. Um, an inner setback would be kind of that minimum area where really no development could occur. And then an outer setback that addresses any site-specific issues, such as um, maybe a more intense land use that requires a larger setback, or maybe there's a larger drainage area or steep slopes that need to be accommodated. That would be in that kind of outer setback. So the idea is to be really flexible and respond to the land and the water body itself to make sure that that is, is protected. So um, some examples would be an inner setback potentially of 25 feet. This is um, what Gunnison County uses. And then an outer setback that might go um, 100 feet or more. And, and again, that, that's an example from Gunnison County. We want to make sure it's right size for Route County. So there's some more work to be done to determine the specific numbers. But um, this was the idea that we wanted to get some feedback on. Um, the other piece is a key issue that staff runs into uh, related to uh, water bodies is requests for water body crossings. Um, and the proposal would update these standards to be more detail and potentially require a planning commission or board of county commissioner review, depending on the type of water body that um, is being crossed and, and some of those impacts. So this is another area where a more detailed environmental report would likely be required because crossing a water body does have, um, have impacts. And so um, we wanted to call that out. So we have um, four specific questions uh, for you related to uh, current direction on the environmental regulations. The first is about uh, your support or not for the environmental impact report. Uh, the second is about the definition of water body to include intermittent streams and wetlands. Uh, third is about that inner buffer with a variable outer buffer. And then the final question is about that, those stream crossings. So we know this is a lot um, and happy to answer any questions as part of your discussion. You define large scale? Uh, we were planning on using the same threshold that the public purpose um, requirement for large scale recreation developments or subdivisions. And can you discern on PUDs? I mean, I can think of some very small PUDs versus. I mean, I think it would that same threshold same, would apply okay. to PUDs as well. <clears throat> There's an environmental, is an environmental impact report limited to strictly physical things, <clears throat> or can it include social issues? So right now, the way that um, this is kind of thought about for this code section is um, more physical things related to the environment. So it could be air quality, steep slopes, mud flow, avalanche, things like that. Um, the idea of uh, getting into an, a social piece, 
that's something that we would recommend as, as part of that PUD review related to public purpose, and that those types of applications would need to um, in, include responses and information um, related to that, potentially modeled after um, the language that's been included in your solar regulations from the fall. And then I have a second question uh, at the beginning of the narrative about environmental regulations, the <clears throat> second paragraph, there's a reference to uh, an environmental hazard or mitigation report. Uh, these can be useful to understand the layered impacts, effect of impacts. Does the word, is the word layered different than cumulative? Um, cumulative is maybe a better word. That's that's what's intended there. Yeah. So what is the environmental impact report? I mean, obviously, I know what generally that means, yeah. but are we referencing a particular style agency? Is there a template of structure that we're pointing to when we talk about this, or is this just still very vague? language for something that would assess impacts. I think this, this is a vague, this is just to get direction to understand if, if you want an environmental impact report to be, um, to be required. And if the answer to that is yes, then we will uh, put together what we think that environmental impact report should contain. And then you will tell us whether you like it or not. <laughs> we so, have an example that you all could send to us now. If I contacted a local engineering firm and said, I need an environmental impact report, would they know what I'm talking about? Do they have any? I mean, I think or, we need to put those. We, those we would have to put both in there. So we're creating this yeah. part, if you will. And a lot of what you're seeing here is, as I had stated in the very beginning, I mean, up until this point, you know that there's been. <sighs> abundance of outreach and we've met with various stakeholders and some of our stakeholder environmental groups that we have met with, you know, this is uh, some of the recommendations we have heard along with the staff issues that we have run into putting some of this into practice and where we're feeling we're lacking um, and could strengthen our regulations. Um, but before we get too far, you know, down the road, um, it's more the conceptual idea, um, uh, should we spend time on this to, you know, put bookends to um, an environmental impact report, what the requirements would be um, for you all to review and, and to sign off on in the draft language. But, but, but Christy, as it stands today, if a large scale development comes in, you've already got a checklist of every entity and and. Yeah, every entity that you're going to reach out to yep. for comments and opinions. Absolutely. So how does that differ from what you're already doing? I mean, this would be very specific, um, a, a very specific review, um, rather than just sending a referral to Division of Water Resources. Or, right. I, mean, I just always think of a list that you Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> just like, you know, some of the other things we have talked about for like a subdivision, we require up front, you know, a wildlife review, and we're requiring a lot of these things already with some of our other review processes. Um, 
we don't have this requirement for um, water body setbacks. Um, and this is something, you know, we feel we should probably have in our regulations and, and have something that a developer can expect or a landowner can expect that would be required. I think and it's very easy to say yes to item six without any detail. <laughs> I'm not, because I'm just trying to understand until what the difference unless is. We, we understand exactly what that report requires and what it looks like and how it's complementary to existing efforts. You know, it's, I mean, Nicety, I mean, right? So like, I think you're in the majority this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow. would, would it be a third party that would execute a unbiased environmental? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. So the way I'm seeing it is like, so you said that yes, you're in support of making the sketch subdivision review optional in those tier two areas. Typically, that's at that sketch review. That's where we find out. Oh, you need this wildlife report. So if we're going to get away from or make that sketch subdivision review optional, then this requirement would indicate to a developer that even though no one has told you, a referral agency hasn't told you you need to do this, the regulations say you need to do this so that that can be evaluated at that preliminary subdivision review. It becomes part of their checklist. Program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and we still have other meetings with um, stakeholders after, you know, we all meet here where, you know, we intend to fine tune some of these through some of those technical experts we typically deal with to provide you um, some good direction and language in the draft. I mean, I think that this is entirely consistent with what you've already put into the packet, which is the idea of encouraging looking at some of these natural features and natural hazards on the front end of the project as opposed to on the back end and right. trying to avoid rather than mitigate and that sort of thing. Yeah, and leaving it up to the planning commissioners and the county commissioners to uh, randomly think of something they should have thought about. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm right. supportive of this. Others? Details. Well, I think the concept is, do we want them to go forward? And I think the answer is yeah. yes. Now, when the details come out, that's when the debates right. will really right. surface. Again, from the developer standpoint, you know, adding something that just causes confusion when they can't even gather the re the information, as as opposed to a, you know a wildlife report, yeah. you know, it's it needs to be detailed to give clarity to our development community. Absolutely. Otherwise, it's just going to be a headache. So, and go back to the 3580. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing well on that point, you know that. <laughs> so for number seven, what's the definition of an intermittent stream? Is it 90 days? Well, so right now the definition of a water body is anything that flows continuously for 90 consecutive days. And so, intermittent stream might not meet that definition. And so therefore the water body setback would not be applicable to it. And so that got changed in 2016, 17. It used to be 60 days and then it got increased to 90 days. And then also with the uncertainty at the federal level as to what a wetland is, um, staff felt that it was appropriate to include that here because right now, if it's a wetland but doesn't hold water for 90 days, 
then we say, hey, that's that's the Army Corps. You have to deal with them and with the uncertainty on what they define now as a wetland and where their regulations start and stop. Uh, staff thought it was appropriate that the, the county include those protections to wetlands. Over and above before the, the federal process. Um, that's a hard question to no, answer because I don't know what the federal process is. I think it's in flux right now. The, the mitigation is the challenge here. So is Route County gonna take a stance that any wetland based on our definition is, it needs to be avoided or can there be a mitigation option also as part of this? And then all of a sudden we're getting into a much, we're opening up a larger book than I think what our current intentions might be. Um, there's there is a potential for uh, for mitigating impacts, yeah, yeah. Because you can even though we have these setbacks, you can get a permit to encroach on those setbacks based on um, what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, and then what's what your mitigation plan is. So um, I do think that uh, offsets or mitigation is is still something that. Uh, is available to both the developer and, and the county to, to require and to, yeah. Didn't we do that on that? There was a 2015 newspaper article about Lynn Walker. It's quite contentious. And now I'm quoted all over the place in that thing. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the water body setback question has been going on for a very long time. I know. I just, my memory is, I thought we. They got around it by uh, a showing of unavoidability. Right. No, they got around uh, it by and, dis dismissing with another bridge elsewhere, according to our trust. But they, what they, what, what the reasoning was, was that that bridge had to be there and the bridge could not be built uh, utilizing the existing setbacks. So they got away, they had got a waiver from it because they convinced the Board of County Commissioners that <laughs> it was unavoidable to have that bridge. Do I have that about and right? Then, and, yeah, and then yeah. part of their mitigation was, hey, currently right now during hay season, we drive our all of our equipment right through that's the river. That's what I remember too. And now that that side of the river is not going to be hay anymore, there's no reason for us to drive our equipment through the <clears> river. <throat> and so therefore there's less impact to it because of that. And then they did plantings on that side of the river and it helps repair the riparian area because before that there was no riparian area. It had been hayed, it had been ranched, it had been, it was a very degraded part of the river because of the agricultural impact over the past couple of years to it. So I have a question. <clears throat> um, this question about intermittent streams in the wetlands and this is a rhetorical question, I'm not betraying my feelings on this, but um, would not an environmental impact report address those issues? And that planning commission and the commissioners could analyze the environmental impact report and make a decision on whether or not it was appropriate. Well, so the, you gotta keep in mind the, the, based on how we're proposing it, that environmental impact report would only be required for Learn. projects of a mm. certain threshold. Okay. 
there will be a lot of projects that fall below this threshold that would still be subject to, to these regulations. So when we talk about these setback measurements, we are talking from the high water mark, correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. I don't love the 25 feet and I would love to understand better how that doesn't actually water down protections. So that would be based on the, the function and the, um, the current state of that water body because right now we've got some that meet the definition of a water body but have absolutely no riparian area. They are hayed, they are ranched, and the, the quality is very poor. And so, um, so in those situations, it might be appropriate that the setback is less because they don't provide any wildlife habitat value. They don't have any um, water quality value and so uh, we thought it could potentially be appropriate to reduce that setback while on like some of the bigger creeks, streams and rivers, it would be significantly more than potentially a hundred feet or more as far as a setback just to, I mean, because we, we get issues where people come in and say, hey, I want, I want to build my house over there but it crosses the crosses these two water bodies. We need to put a culvert in. We're like, all right, well, I guess it's unavoidable. And then we have no standards to say you must do it this way. And so we're trying to provide flexibility to those water bodies that have very low ecological function and differentiate those between the ones that do and really focus our efforts and protections on the ones that do have that riparian area, do have that high functioning ecological value and like really focus our efforts on those areas. Do um, agricultural producers that need to build a bridge for purely agricultural purposes, are they subject to these setbacks? Currently, no. That's some of what number nine is getting at too, is that there's situations where some, like there's actually quite a few situations in the county where you might have a county road that's the only access on a parcel and a water body, you know, in quotes, is running alongside the road. It has no ecological value. It's, it's a very small drainage of sorts. They have to apply for a water body setback permit and go through public notice and it's for something that's like we have there's no place to put the house the building sites on the other side um and so the thought there is that if there were best practices that were just a default requirement for situations like that those could be handled um administratively as opposed to having to go through a process for something that's not actually protecting anything and then the one of the issues with the, the ag bridge is that after a couple of years, oh, I want to build my house over there. Oh, I conveniently have a bridge already across. And yep, so you're not subject to those same standards that a, a, a typical citizen that doesn't have an agricultural operation that would be. Does planning staff believe that if we did this, that it would somehow enhance environmental protection, even with a potential reduction? of the setback. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the, so I want to be clear that potential reduction is for we would come up with standards that would 
or require some type of report that details what the what the ecological function of that uh, water body is mm. that would warrant a lesser setback. So we're not just saying, I mean, we would we would have some standards and some kind of evaluation criteria to be able to reduce that setback to 25. Does that render moot the discussion of key question number six? No. Uh, no, because the environmental impact report is for... No, no, any... not, no, no. I'm talking about uh, supporting the inclusion of intermittent strains as a water body. You know, on the one hand, you're saying we need to be able to <clears throat> regulate activities around these. But on the other hand, you're saying, well, if they're not environmentally important, we're not going to well, impose these setbacks. Let's take Cow Creek, for example. That's an intermittent stream. That has a very high functioning riparian area. And so even though it's an intermittent stream, because it has a high functioning riparian area, we would afford greater protections to that. Okay, I get you. So um, at the risk of sounding flip about your explanation there, um, it almost sounds like what we're saying is, well, they've already wrecked these areas, so let's just let them keep on wrecking them further. I. I struggled with that myself, and we, <laughs> and we, and we did, and we okay. did have conversations about that with environmental health and planning staff. And what we came out with is we should focus our efforts on those high functioning areas, and because that's where we'll, we think we will get the biggest, the biggest impact. We also hope this gives us more certainty with our with applying the code because, you know, a wetland might be dry much of the time, but it might have value. Um, conversely, there's issues, like we have this issue with residential building permits, particularly well, where there'll be a water body or something that's labeled with a word that sounds kind of like what you call a water body. And, um, and then I'll, we'll flag it and we'll say, well, if that's a water body, you have to do water body setbacks. Otherwise prove it runs less than 90 days. And they're like, well, I just bought this property and it's been vacant for years and there's no neighbors within five miles. How can I prove that it hasn't run for 90 days most recently? I was like, well, this past year was kind of wet, so it probably did, but the previous year it, it was kind of dry, so then it didn't. And so sometimes it is a water body, sometimes it isn't. We want more certainty with the process. We want to be able to be sure that, you know, changing federal attitudes towards wetlands don't prevent us from pr protecting them, but we also don't want to be dragging people through the ringer when they literally have no other way to get to the other side of their property. And we don't have a wetlands map, I assume. Uh, we've got the the one by the Army Corps, but those are those just depict delineated wetlands. But we believe we have the internal expertise to identify. Um, I mean, we, I think we are, we've got existing code language that says that someone, an expert from hired by the developer can do that analysis. And uh, we do require statement of qualifications to ensure that that expert that they hired is qualified in, in that field. <clears throat> There's some good stuff in here, but there's some. I, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, my instinct coming in here, my question was going to be, we have a 50, solid 50 foot setback right, right now. And my question is going to be, what's been the problem with that? Other than, you know, we've had a couple of unique situations 
that are addressed, but I'm, I find myself beginning to be persuaded by your assertions that this could work to provide a higher level of protection for these water bodies than what we currently have. But I guess the devil would be in the details. I mean, like Christy said, we've got, we do have meetings with uh, stakeholders that are very interested in this, that um, are, have offered to help do research on best practices for, for these types of regulations. And so I think that through, through that process and engaging those stakeholders, that we can come up with some regulations that will both provide flexibility at the same time protecting those, protecting these wetlands and water bodies and riparian areas. So this is one of the reasons that we joined QQ, which for those of you who might not be familiar is the Northwest COGS um, Water Quality and Quantity Program. And they basically have attorneys and write regulations statewide for all kinds of different things. And that was one of the reasons that we joined up was to have them provide some expertise in this area. And so we met with them and um, they helped inform uh, some of the bullets that you're seeing here. And we plan on to continue to meet with them on drafts and for them to provide comments, which they, um, they had said that they would. So um, just so there's some assurance there. There's also various people on the call too um, interested in this topic that we've been um, meeting with and will continue to meet with on this subject specifically. Yeah, I just think we need to be clear that it's good to have stakeholder engagement, but you know that is a professional association with legal expertise that I would sort of put into a different category. Um, and why aren't we talking about the 90 days versus 60 days? Uh, because in Michael's example, how are you, how are, how is somebody able to prove if it, if they come in in like August, September, and how are they to prove that, oh, it doesn't run 90 days or it does run 90 days? Um, so we were, also hoping, or one of our goals is to be able to provide a more objective definition so that when we see that mapped, we're not like, oh, how long does that run for? And then they just make up some date and give it to us. So I think currently the, the city had, their definition is based on the size of the drainage area. And that is something that we're looking at as well. So we aren't considering doing any mapping or like why, why would mapping is, is that not something that we can do or should do? I mean, of every drainage in Route County. Ouch. Well, the U S geological survey has quite a bit of information on all of this stuff. I mean, it's not as though we would go out and survey every single parcel. I mean, I'd volunteer you after you're finished your next year, right? Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. I understand that, but guess what? Somebody's mapping. I mean, we, we have our hydrology layer through our GIS, and I'm pretty sure that's we, that information is pulled from USGS. So we have mapping, but you're asking for... Well, I guess my point is this, like when we look at our maps and we look at, we have a thing called zoning, right? That we use <laughs> with our maps. And so like, 
So why those, aren't we looking at this? So those are details. You, you, you've scolded me a couple of times. <laughs> you may be going down a rabbit hole here. The high level question, I assume you do support the inclusion of intermittent streams and, and wetlands in the definition of a water body. Sure. Yes, that answer. That there question. we go, Chuck. That, that's now a, we're on to eight. That's, right. that, that's so it's, <laughs> what does everybody else feel about number seven? Which is number six on our inner buffer with variability. Oh, yeah. There, there's a one numbering difference between what's intermittent streams is number six. Yeah, on, right. On this uh, number uh, seven up there. Yeah, that's number seven up there. So, so do we agree with number six as shown in the packet? The yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And you've got your answer in five. Yeah. Yep. So where's five? Five is the impact statement. The impact report. Yeah. Number six up six there. Oh, that's up there. I didn't realize there was a difference. Thanks for pointing oh, that out, Brian. Right? There's a one numbering difference. Oh, one number, yeah, <laughs> should we be looking at, uh, should we be identifying the numbers on the screen or the numbers in our packet? Screen. Screen. No, screen. So we've got a yes to number six on the screen and right. a yes to number seven on the screen. Correct. Right. Yeah, what about number eight? Now we're number eight on the screen. <laughs> no. That's the fixed buffer. <laughs> no. I don't even know what it is. It's that's lowering it to 25 feet. It's more the question of, yeah. you know, is the number the number or is there some form of variability within the number based on the functionality of the is that right? Um, so that one was more geared towards like the crossings of the uh, a, a crossing. And so for like an a crossing of a like a smaller a smaller intermittent drainage, um, there are best practices. Um, one that we recently got made aware of is an open bottom culvert, which allows it's better sediment transport, better for, um, for the small wildlife that use it. And so staff's idea was if we could come up with a set of fixed standards that someone complies with for one of those smaller crossings, do they need to go through a full administrative review review for that? That requires notice to the adjacent property owners, um, legal ad in the paper, sign, all that kind of stuff. When it's a crossing, it has to be there in order for them to access their property, but we still want some best management practices to be employed on that crossing. And so the question is, if they do comply with all those best standards, best management practices, would that review, could that review be something less than an administrative review? And the idea being is that at the end of the day, this would be better than a finding of unavoidability. I mean, we'd probably still be making that finding of unavoidability, but we would be saying that it's unavoidable and they have agreed to implement these best practices that we've identified. And so therefore um, we can approve that permit. You can put that. Comments? I don't like it. You said you don't? No. You don't like the 25 or you don't like the variable piece I like the of variable. it? I don't like either of them. Either of them. So you would rather see a fixed setback? Yes. Okay. And any ideas how big? 
Not 25. 50? At least. Stick with that 50? At a minimum. Well, that's what we have now, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. At a minimum from okay. the high water mark. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, so for like some of these like smaller drainages, 50 feet's appropriate. Would 50 feet still be appropriate for like the Yamper River? I'm just thinking back to our conversation about D and D. Remember that? About what? D and D, the recycling permit, recycling. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that kind of depends. Okay, I mean, because I mean, it's not, I mean, like we can still do a variable, but the minimum is fifty feet instead of twenty-five feet, and then have that variable for the the larger rivers and creeks and streams be the setback be higher than 50 feet i think that's fine but i'm thinking about a situation in which you know you have a relatively small parcel that is close to the river and you know. and so that's where that permit so the right. permit allows you to encroach into that setback right so the setback is the is the the hard 50 foot you right must now. comply with this unless there's a finding of unavoidability and then in that situation you get a permit where we review all of the impacts and say, oh, well, you're proposing it to be 10 feet from the river. It could actually be 40 feet from the river and still accomplish your goals, but still have those added protections that the county feels is appropriate. More detail. Yeah, I still have some concerns with the intermittent stream setback. What's that number look like? Like, I'd be okay with a, a 25 foot setback to an intermittent stream, but are we throwing a 50 foot setback? But aren't you trying to redefine that anyway? Yeah, that's part of this discussion. Yeah, uh, I think we've got we've got direction to be able to put something together so that I mean, because again, we're talking conceptual here, thirty thousand right. foot view, and until you see what the actual standards and the thresholds and the definitions are, I think we're just gonna be spinning our wheels right now. So I, I believe we have the direction that we need to be able to draft something. And then we'll come back to you, show you the specifics, and then you can say whether you like it or not. I apologize. I think someone already asked this, but the fixed 50 has been such a known part of, of the planning. Specifically, why the change again? I heard a couple of outlier situations, but specifically, why do you all feel that is important as opposed to the 50? Uh, because there are those streams that have no riparian area. Based on a renewed definition. Yeah, and so staff felt that that might be appropriate to allow for a lesser setback to give a landowner more options for how they want to develop their land and then there's also the the, the yampa and the elk that um could potentially require more, a, a larger setback did, did i also hear you say though i felt like i heard you say that uh, a landowner could just simply comply with a 50-foot setback and do whatever they want to do whereas in this particular case there might be an allowance to be within 25 feet, but you would still end up with a better result in that particular Yeah, instance. like have like Maybe specific requirements for a culvert type P would be a, yeah. a okay. good example. Yeah. 
uh, and get a just, better outcome. Yeah, it gives that landowner some flexibility to say, hey, well, I mean, again, I've been driving my tractor through the river for the past hundred years. And so if I stop doing that, then it will it will help that riparian area and make that make that river stream healthier in the long run. Oh, if they build a bridge, I, I, you lost me on. I mean, that could be if just one of the bridge or one, they... one of the mitigation measures that they employ. I see. It's just to provide flexibility to both the county to be able to require a larger setback and gives flexibility to a landowner to potentially have a lesser setback. And so we're kind of approaching this twofold with with both the county's interest in mind and the landowner's interest in mind. And the current definition really doesn't work well. As noted, the 90-day definition is hard to prove, but it also doesn't differentiate between, because we talked to someone about what really is a water body in their mind, and they gave us this, it was admittedly a very complicated explanation that um, goes into whether a stream loses or gains water, um, because some things are just surface drainages. Like, we're not saying that if something doesn't have a riparian area, it's not worth protecting just as a blanket statement because that's not true. Some places would have a very vibrant riparian area if they were left alone and given a setback. Other places, it's just a surface drainage and it happens to be a large parcel and it's always going to look the way it does or worse. And we wanna be able to differentiate between those two situations because we don't want to prevent someone from crossing a water body that they absolutely need to cross because there's no place on this side to put their house. But we also don't want to ignore situations that well, well, it could have a good riparian area, but it only runs for 80 days a year in certain drier years or whatever. We wanna be able to protect those things too. Ben, your question? No. <laughs> I've got uh, too many questions and Sonia will get mad at me. <laughs> I don't get mad. I I don't think, she, she can scold without being upset. I think the Alan's point, <laughs> They've got enough direction, I think, yeah. based on the conversation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We need a little more work on this. Right. Besides, 610 is getting short, and I don't want to lose Sonia. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> 610. 610. Stop. Oh. Oh, pretty close. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We got a less controversial topic coming up. <laughs> we do. Good yeah. segue into the next topic. Okay, next topic. Um, it is about 12 to 6 and want to make sure you're comfortable potentially going a little bit over to get through the oil and gas um, section. It is the last section of the evening. Just do it. Just move on. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, just thinking about your question, <laughs> some support, none or all. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Let me let me go through the um the section. So um we we did want to get your feedback on oil and gas regulations. Uh Western Colorado Alliance for Community Action uh, did provide a letter regarding some potential updates. Um they are uh, some experts in this area, so we we did include it in the packet because they had some very specific suggestions, we wanted to get your feedback um, on, on those. So I'll just really quickly um, go through. Uh, their first suggestion was to have some more specifics regarding best management practices um, within the code language. The second is a language change um, from may to shall, uh, kind of closing some um, perceived loopholes 
in uh, best management practice section. The third would be to add the climate action plan as um, something that should be uh, considered in, in the review. Fourth is to increase some bonding requirements related to reclamation um, along with an inflation adjustment. The fifth is to uh, prohibit uh, the use of oil and gas resources that generate significant emissions and cause a kind of higher level of impact. Um, this would include uh, crypto mining, uh, as well as some um, kind of power generation related to that. Um, and then the sixth suggestion is uh, related to setbacks. And so some specific numbers related to setbacks uh, from residential areas, uh, riparian water bodies, uh, things like that. Um, so I'll, the question is sort of simple. Do, do you support some, all, or none of these? But I'll maybe leave the, their specific suggestions up um, to go through. I'd like to open up with the process. We received this letter on December 23rd. This is a master plan review process. We didn't, if Linda Miller was here, they didn't comment during the public, you know, times to comment on, on our oil and gas regulations. So I can appreciate we received the letter and now we're going to review that letter. But in this process, I don't feel that the community was was fully vetted or this issue was fully vetted. And now we're taking our time to review it when it should have been more detailed in the master plan, if this is in the master plan review, if this is something that we feel our community um, need, we need changes. So for well, what it's worth, I've received, I guess five, three to five different I've spoken with three to five different people about this issue over the past year who have requested specifically to speak to the commissioners about changing some of these regulations to keep up with one of the pieces of legislation that passed. So obviously that's not a public process, but you know, people have been reaching out to us. At least I don't know if you've had any meetings, but we have been getting people saying, you know, as a part of your planning process, are you going to be looking at these things? And, you know, my response has been, um, we will be looking at everything and give us some specific recommendations. If you have interest in seeing something change, we can have a public process and we'll have some discussions. So I guess I'd see this more as that because this letter, if I'm not mistaken, came to you when July? Yeah, back in July. But for example, we haven't heard from the mineral right owners on the opposite side of the table. Sure, no, we haven't. So I have problems with us looking at potential adopt changes to our regulatory to our regulations when it hasn't been fully vetted. So if, if this is in fact a master plan review process. So in fact, there's still opportunity for those individuals to weigh into this process. Right. Just want to make sure that, that they get invited to the table. Right. Yeah. And if you flip the four, five, and six, I think that's more pertinent to the state statute stuff that's been mm -hmm. mentioned that I believe those, not four, but that uh, six for sure, and even five, that's uh, really flaring, if I'm not mistaken. Right. That's prohibited by the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission, or they're calling, they got, got a new fancy name for it, ECMC, is what they're calling the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission nowadays. 
I was talking more about the process yeah. itself yeah. than than necessarily. But the, I guess to respond to that, this those lower items in six, like the legislature is a public process. Those items are already addressed. Yeah, they're already yeah. Kind of Ren, the, a lot of what you're seeing here um, has been going on at the state level. The state, right? I recognize that. And um, and we had an oil and gas application a couple of years ago. Um, probably while we were starting the master plan process. And we knew that we had to evaluate the regulations and talking with the county attorney's office, this is something that we felt was most appropriate to come through this process. Um, it was discussed during the master plan process. We have guidance to evaluate it. And this is the time to do that because we're talking about module three and environmental, this is the place where it starts. Um, we have gotten input. Um, a lot of folks have commented on oil and gas through our outreach up until this point. Um, and I'll, I'll just mention again, no decisions are being made. I mean, this is the appropriate place and channel to have the discussion. Um, so it will be vetted out again once we have draft language and we just need to hear from you all um, for us to work on updating the regs and um, how strict do we want to be or um, less strict. Um, so we're just looking for that guidance. So when we get to adoption, we're not completely, you know, <laughs> sideways, you know. Um, so we are looking for that um, direction from you all now. We had a conversation, Commissioner Corian may remember some time ago um, regarding BLM properties and oil and gas development. And at that time took a pretty extensive look at the maps in Route County, which we also looked at, we being the broader community back when oil and gas regulations were first considered, was that 10 some years ago? I don't even know. 2010, 2011. Yeah. Something like that. So I mean, I feel like this has kind of been a community <clears throat> conversation for a very long period of time. And the upshot of it is, you know, we're not Weld County. I mean, the actual practical application <coughs> of oil and gas, like we're not both County. I mean, and I'm not going to say it's de minimis what we do because I think it's obviously important and we provide certainty to people who are interested in doing business in our community. But at the same time, when we look at how much this is going to affect the way business is done. You know, I've gone on record in the past saying the contentious items that we are now discussing, I have felt that have not been fully vetted by the community. <coughs> square footage, housing square footage, you know, that was the big one for me and have concern that there will be backlash. I obviously got feedback from through this process that it's not necessarily our responsibility to educate the, the public, but I feel on these contentious issues, issues, we should be taking a higher level of public outreach. And this is one of those contentious issues. So, well, the and I feel that that is part of our responsibility. Now. <laughs> they heard the home size discussion and people are showing up and they're contacting us. So and, you I, know, this may be the same thing. I, I appreciate what, what Ren is saying. And I think that there is room to make sure that we're taking in as much public comment as possible. In the meantime, I don't think there's any reason that we shouldn't go down through uh, the letter that we got from uh, the Western Colorado Alliance, because I know I just have a, 
I've just got a few very specific questions that I'd like to get resolved. Okay. So on the second request, um, uh, uh, there's a reference to uh, mitigation. Oh, yeah, the first sentence uh, has the potential to create a significant negative impact in the surrounding area. Mitigation may be required. And we don't have to answer this question right now, but I'd just like to understand who defines adequate mitigation uh, and what that looks like. And then uh, on the fourth request, the in the first sentence, uh, the talking about increasing bonding levels to current reclamation cost estimates. It says $120,000 per lease. And I wonder if they didn't mean to say per well, because a lease could have many wells, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, and then on the third request, the adding the climate action plan, um, to, uh, to the list of attributes to be considered for negative impacts, would that be putting Route County in the position of considering uh, total CO2 emissions, uh, life cycle of all the emissions, the, the downstream, would we be actually considering global impacts from CO2 emissions? I don't think we need to answer any of those questions right now. <coughs> I'd be curious. Yeah, we can certainly, um, you know, evaluate this more and provide um, that information to you and um, work with the stakeholder um, directly on some of the things that we may not be able to answer. Um, but this is something um, we want to share with the attorney's office, too, because they've been working with us um, all this time. Um, this goes back years of looking at our oil and gas regulations. Um, so this will be fully vetted um, with whatever language we come up with, and um, and it, it doesn't stop here. I mean, this is obviously a big deal, um, as we know, um, that we'll have to get um, more input on. I'll be honest with you. I don't actually fully understand this fifth request, crypto mining industry. I don't, I don't understand that. <laughs> I know it's explained, but it's still. I understand it. It takes huge amounts of power to to do crypto mining, and I don't understand the applicability that it has with Route County per se. And I, I think that's something that would definitely need more clarification about what they're really asking for. And well, how do how do you measure direct impact or benefit for citizens? You know, with that's very subjective. Well, I'll give you an example in uh, upstate New York. The, I think it's the north end of Seneca Lake. There was an old coal-fired powered plant. It was converted to a natural gas fire, uh, plant. And then it was closed down for economic reasons. A crypto mining company came in and bought the power plant and the property around it and refired it up purely for the purpose of crypto mining. So they're currently burn, uh, burning through millions of cubic feet of natural gas to do crypto mining. So personally, that I would be offended if the uh, Hayden power station was converted into a power source for crypto mining. And I would sure, I'm, I'm just, 
they should just call out crypto mining then or something. Otherwise, it leaves a lot of ambiguity yeah. and room for adding other things right. in there as well. Yeah. Or maybe we just deal with crypto mining as a land use and deal right. with that separately from oil and gas or an extractive And use. I think at a staff level, that's what we have been talking about. Again, this is a recommendation um, from a stakeholder. Why don't you guys noodle on that fifth one and, and maybe we just put that one on the shelf and consider the other ones because it seems sort of like it is out there and it's, as you say, not the staff recommendation per se. Yeah. We don't even think at the moment that crypto mining is a land use allowed in our code because it's effectively, I mean, you could make a very interesting argument that it's a form of mining, but it's really a server farm is what it is. Um, and a server farm is just, you know, a typical commercial or industrial use that requires large data centers and power and internet and everything. And we don't have much commercial or industrial area in the county and the current ones we do are being used for other land uses. So I think it's, I mean, it's definitely something to keep in mind with the code update, but I don't think it's something that we're worried about <coughs> the Hayden station is just going to all, all of a sudden do that. You could conceivably take a wellhead, I think, the methane gas coming off of it in the formations that we have and use that gas to generate power to do a certain amount of crypto mining. Mm -hmm. Just passing that along. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. So, Alan, <laughs> offer of that one for the time being, because I think we'll see where that's going. In the fourth, <laughs> yeah. In the fourth request, it says adequate bonding on state or federal level is more appropriate than on local. So am I understanding that this yielding to the state for that for those levels? But if they're only asking for a hundred thousand, we would add twenty thousand. Is that what that's to say? We'd we'd have to get into that. I mean, because like the state, I mean, and I'm talking before the whole revamping of COGCC or ECMC or whatever it's called. Um, prior to that, we were preempted from doing anything downhole. So the state required the bond for the downhole. And we required the bond for all the surface, the surface impacts. Right. And so we, I mean, we would need to evaluate whether $120 is, or $120,000 is adequate for the surface impacts, or if that's too high for the surface impacts, or if it should be based on like what we do with subdivisions or road engineering studies right now, like tell us what your impact is, we will see what that cost is. And then the bond is based on that instead of, I mean, because if you $120,000, if you're 500 feet off of the county road, that's gonna well exceed what the surface impacts are. But if you're three miles back, it's not gonna come anywhere close to touching that. So I think it really depends on the, the specifics of the well and I mean, I would prefer that it be based on the actual impact instead of just throwing out this standard number that applies to every single operation there is. Well, for my money, um, I think these are all, with the exception of five, which I think Pete and Mike, well, Michael pointed out is potentially not applicable or applicable in a different way. I think these are all very reasonable suggestions and I appreciate uh, Roger 
taken the time to really look at our current code and, and try to build on that because that's a lot more helpful to me in any way than just sort of um, a blanket suggestion that we do X, Y, or Z, but really looking at like, what is this, you know, what does the legislation require? How does our code meet that or not? And what could we do better? So I'm generally supportive of um, all of these except for five, which again, you know, I don't think we've, we've thrown that out to some degree. Um, but I think I'd be a lot more comfortable if you guys as staff, you know, took these recommendations and basically ran them through the filter of, you know, the kinds of things that Alan's describing. And, you know, like, yeah, this works or no, it doesn't, because I feel like we're getting a recommendation from an outside group that I think right. while 100% worthwhile, and I believe that they've worked on this and, and done this research, I think you guys need to make sure that it fits. We need, we need to vet it and see what the, the state requires. I mean, yeah. if the state already requires this stuff, then there's no reason for Route County to require exactly. it. So there's well, certainly- that was, you may recall back in the day, we were accused of <clears throat> imposing a lot of duplicative right. uh, regulations upon the water gas industry. And we said, that's fine, don't, who cares? <laughs> Too bad, we're yeah. gonna do it anyway. Just in case the state doesn't enforce but, their own But there's just been so many changes, we as we all know, as of late, that um, we just also need to understand the, the latest and greatest. Um, because I was keeping Mind up with it for a while, but yeah. PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> so I agree with the commissioner. I'm generally supportive of these. Uh, I think it's perfectly all right for us to have somewhat more restrictive regulations than maybe at the state level. I think for me, the classic example is I've always been frustrated that the state imposed uh, emission regulations in the non-attainment area uh, on the front range, but not in areas where the air was clean. And it always just seemed ridiculous to me. Seriously, we're only going to impose regulations after the air has gone bad. Can't we do it in, in advance? So. But there's one additional consideration that has to be talked about, but we're not there yet. Do we have, if, if we're going to implement additional restrictions and do we have the staff to enforce that? Well, that's part of what they need to be doing. Well, I said, it's not the time, yeah, right. but it's something to be thinking about yeah. as we move forward on that. Yeah. Yes. Because that surfaced in the past as well. Yes. It's on and our minds for sure because we've, you know, I don't know much about the geology of downhole operations, so I would prefer the state regulates that because they know what they're talking about, and I'd probably miss it. Surface level, obviously, is much more zoning-related stuff, so that's kind of why we have that separation of powers that we do, but obviously, whenever there's overlap in one direction or the other, we need to keep it in mind. Again, that was the point. I think we're Almost done. Huh? I think we are. Yeah, the staff has got something else they really want to talk about. Um, no, uh, not on this topic. So do you have? Um, oh, yep, right uh, up on the slide are the next oh, steps. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. So um, thank you. The conversation tonight is, is really helpful for us as we move forward. So um, we are still looking uh, into March and April for public hearings on the code updates. In the interim, as um, Alan and, and Christy and Michael have mentioned, we are anticipating additional uh, community engagement as we're working through draft language. So um, focus group meetings, um, an additional survey uh, that we've done throughout the process. So um, there will be additional opportunity for the community to weigh in prior to those public hearings as well. 
Um, and so with that, um, we're happy to answer any other questions um, if you have any related to next steps, but thank you again for the time tonight and the conversation. So a couple of process questions. One, is there a hearing and a recommendation from planning commission or is this strictly a hearing in front of the county commissioners? No, planning commission will make a recommendation. So, okay. Yeah. And then out of uh, deference to some of our rents concerns, I would like to think that there would be um, not just one public hearing at no. the time of adoption where people get no. to make public, there would be more than one public hearing in front of planning commission? Yeah, I, I was gonna say once there's a, a draft available, it will be available to the public and then we will have a hearing with both bodies where uh, the public can provide comments on that draft. And that draft will be sent to our list of stakeholders, um, anybody we've been communicating with, anybody we know who's interested in, we send directly to those individuals. will also be available through um, social media and our website that we created dedicated to the code updates that probably everybody in this room got the email about tonight's meeting. Um, and so there'll be an opportunity to comment on that on the, like formally on the draft as well as during the public hearing process which will be more of a formal come so, to the podium. So there'll be a public hearing of this group. Yeah. At which we will take public comment. Correct. And then there'll be a public hearing by the planning commission where public comment will be right. for, for adoption. And then yeah. again, once yep. again. And then adoption. Okay. Yeah, yeah there'll, there'll be several opportunities. Should we nudge the pilot to do an updated article? You know, based yeah. on where we're at today, yeah. point out the contentious issues, yeah. do everything we can. You know, it could be hit or miss with the pilot, but they've seemed to take interest in the Brown Ranch issue. Maybe they'll take interest in this yeah. and mm -hmm. anything we can do to continue to educate. Yeah. Well, certainly uh, Amanda, and then we could ask Amanda. We've been working with Amanda up until this point, who is the county's PIO. Um, and, you know, uh, we can coordinate directly with her um, and the pilot. Absolutely. And she yeah. does a good job of using all the social media outlets, press releases to the various news outlets. You know, the process, the issues, in the next steps. Mm -hmm. Yep. And if anybody else has any ideas on how to get the word out to everybody, we are all ears. Because again, we can scream as loud as we want to. If nobody's listening, no one's going to hear us. Oh, they'll be listening the day we adopt it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's exactly how they were. Adoption. I'm assuming, Chris, there's no administrator's report from your staff. Um, I have a short oh, you do. one. Um, Bad assumption. Yeah, we're, we're looking at potentially, uh, we're, we met with Design Workshop earlier today, um, and we were just trying to finalize uh, what we just put up on the screen. Um, but also, uh, Jessica will be in town, I think it's February 15th-ish, right? <laughs> Ish, when you're not sure. Yeah, uh, 15th, so, yeah. 16th, yeah. The 15th, 16th. Um, so we're probably going to expect to either coordinate a work session if we need on some additional topics or um, organize some sort of outreach event around that time. Um, 
we are just finalizing that probably um, no more towards the end of this week, but I just want to flag that for you. February 15th is a regularly scheduled planning commission meeting where we don't have anything scheduled at the moment, but um, it's too early. Yeah. It's, it's a little too early to know um, if we'll have an application, but we don't have anything scheduled on our next regularly scheduled meeting, which is... Is that the 18th next week next week so yeah so no because you have been participating in these no work sessions in this process we're going to give you the night off <laughs> how generous yeah uh, i think we're adjourned. adjourned thank you thank you, thank you. Thank you.